Father God in heaven, we really, really need your heart, your eyes, your mind. And here we are tonight, God, in this book telling us about something that took place 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, there was a guy on the planet and he wasn't reading the book yet. He was living it. We can look back and see the mistakes. We can see the weaknesses. And the easiest thing to do would be just to kind of stand aloof, isolate and criticize. But if we're really, really honest with ourselves, there's a bit of David in each of us. I pray there is in the better parts Because there's no one else that you say is after your own heart like this guy is. And I love the fact that he could be after your heart but still be very human. Encumbered by weaknesses given to human frailty. Fleshly in his vengeance. And so here, Lord, as we seek to see David restored... I pray you would speak to every one of us. There's so much to learn. There's so far to go. But there is a hunger that you placed inside of us, a hunger to want to be like you, that drives us, that drives us deeper. And I think of David that would cry that he hungered for you, that he thirsted for you, that he longed for you, that he craved you. Like a dry and thirsty ground. Craving the rain. For each of us, God, that part you've placed in us. Bring that part to surface tonight. And make that prominent in us. Not just tonight, but forevermore. The part that is desperate for you. Not just because the situation is desperate, but because our heart craves you like air to our lungs. So Lord, just beyond the ritual of a study, transcend. Overcome, Lord, please. And make tonight perfect, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight is that when any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Please search the scriptures. Please let the Bible be your answer. I mean, how many of you here would consider yourself in one way or another artistic? I mean, I'm, I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing artistic people. Some of you don't consider yourself artistic. I look and I think. Well, I think of you as more artistic than you do. I, and imagine if you were, it's just being a kid, a teenage person. Uh, we're all aware of the fact that somewhere every one of you uh, has lived through your teen years. Some of you just barely squeaked out of it. Some of you look like you're about to approach them. But you, clearly you're beyond it. And, 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 and in the teenage years, we become mutants. We're aware of that. I mean, you know, we've got all kinds of things changing on us, and we're trying to figure out who in the world we are. And imagine somewhere in those teen years, something starts to surface. I mean, you know, you know, you hit somewhere between 11 and 13. It all depends on who you are. And you start to decide, try to figure out who in the world am I as far as the world is concerned. How do I engage that? 
How do I look beyond the universe of my family if you've had a tight-knit family? And how do, I, how, how do I engage the world now? Who in the world am I? And how are people going to see me? And somewhere about that same time, some guy comes up, and he is the rock star of all prophets at the time, Samuel. And he kind of shows up, and he, and he brings you out with, you know, with your brothers. You're the youngest of eight boys. And, and dad brings the other seven, doesn't even invite you to the party, if you will. And this prophet has come. And oddly enough, the prophet is looking at what God, I mean, ultimately is sent because God has seen something in one of, the, of your dad's boys that is profound and staggering to God. Something that has really caught him. I mean, caught him. And and. Dad calls in the others because you're the runt of the litter. And, and, and he's gone through every one of them. And somewhere down the line, you're out still watching the sheep. And someone says, you know, you, you got to come in there, too. The prophet showed up at the house. I know Dad didn't call you in, but now he wants you in. And you walk in and this guy looks at you and says, you are the man. I mean, you're not even a man yet. Your voice is still cracking. Your face is full of pimples. You know, you're like, what man? And, you know, you're not allowed to buy any of those things that grown-ups buy that none of us really need to buy anyways. And you're not even allowed to vote. And somewhere in all of that, this guy says, now look at the whole nation. All of the UK now sits on your shoulders. You are going to be the next king of the UK. And you'd think, well, I'm not even a Windsor. I know roughly, I, I mean, I look more like one of her corgis than I do the queen. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, how in the world do I apply to that? And then he disappears. Samuel leaves. He doesn't give you a handbook. It isn't like, here's how to take over being a king 101. I mean, there is no YouTube video to check out. At that point, you just kind of, you kind of just go, okay, uh, well, we'll see what happens. And then you get a call to the, to Buckingham Palace. Because to be honest, at that moment, the queen's just freaking out. She's having a really rough time. She's not willing to step off the throne. Now, I'm in no way, in, you know, saying that what we need is to perform a coup. This is all hypothetical here, okay? So don't start getting, you know, you know, fox on us or something, regardless of where you're from. And anyways, with all of that, and, you know, and, and somewhere in this, this is the story of David. And, and because of that, all of like M, whatever the numbers are now, right? M9, you know, MI9, MI6, MI12, MI, am I a soldier at all? Uh, you know, and they're all looking for you now. And all of the policemen, all of the Metro police, all of the bobbies, all of the guys that have guns that hang out at like King's Cross. I mean, they're all the SWAT team. They've all like, they're all somehow the only thing they all have now on their phones is a picture of your face. And it says, this guy is dead. Kill him. You're, and, and understand, you're not wanted because you were a bad guy. Strangely enough, you were wanted because you're a good guy, because you're after God's heart. And God told the current royalty to step off because you're the one who's going to take the throne. And that was not something you volunteered for. You didn't put in an application. You didn't fill out a survey and someone said, you know, you're most qualified to be a king. You know, in the end of it all, God looks and he says, you know, it wasn't about your talent and your skill. It wasn't about your education base. The only thing that qualified you was what you were after. Because in those first 15 years, you were just loving God, following sheep and sitting behind the stars somewhere, you know, on the ground, staring up at the, the beautiful indigo sky, you know, littered with these beautiful, bright polka dots. And you were going, God, 
How amazing, how awesome, how majestic, how magnificent is your name in all the earth. I mean, when I consider the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon and the stars that you have made, I just go, who in the world am I that you'd even know who in the world I am? I'm a speck of dust. And yet you have this amazing call out to me. You've named that speck of dust and love that speck of dust and want that speck of dust and want a relationship with that speck of dust. And understand, up to this point, that's kind of all you had was the songs that you wrote that weren't to be performed by thousands. If they were to be performed for an audience, my guess is it was a pretty woolly audience. I mean, you pretty much, I would imagine there's David with a harp, if you will. It's kind of like, you know, Hugo on a guitar sitting and playing in front of a bunch of dogs. I mean, it's kind of that idea. But God heard every song he sang. He heard every poem he wrote. And he saw in the heart of that a person who really, really just wanted him. And he didn't see that with any of David's older brothers. He didn't see that with any... Please understand, God did not say, I found one of the men after my own heart. And the millions of people that were part of the kingdom of Israel, God found one guy. And this was it. It was a kid. So what group do you need to belong to for God to notice you? It was the woman, if you remember, who had been bleeding for 12 years, hunched over, who just touched the hem of Jesus' garment when he was being thronged by everybody else. That stopped Jesus in his tracks. And he said, someone touched me. That's like you being on a train, a northern line, somewhere at about 9 a.m. And people were like, uh, someone touched you. Yeah, I bet that's probably true. Everybody's touching you. He's like, no, no, everybody's bumping into me. But somebody touched me. There's a difference. And I want to warn you, even tonight, you could bump into Jesus or you could reach out to him. The choice is yours. But if you do reach out in faith tonight to him, I believe you're going to stop him in his tracks. Now, please hear me. From that point on, needless to say, the current king of that, in this case, is Saul. He obviously is starting to just, the penny starts dropping. Who this guy is, pretty much about the time. I mean, David is introduced, if you will, in script in chapters 13 and 15 of 1 Samuel. But by 17, we really know, I mean, he's anointed in 16. But by 17, we really know that he starts to come to the forefront. Because the one thing Saul has over everyone else, to be honest, is a head and a shoulder. He's a head and a shoulder taller than everyone else. So what makes him seem like the appropriate king in the eyes of the people is he's just the biggest guy in the class. Until, of course, God allows an enemy to stand up that's infinitely larger than him. And Get this, because the thing that brought him up in his strength wasn't strong enough when it came time to face the enemy. Because what he wasn't seeking was the Lord for it. Meanwhile, what this kid had was the infinite God to fight his battle. So it doesn't matter how big the battle is. It doesn't matter how huge the problem is. It doesn't matter how impossible it seems. My God raises the dead. He makes anything out of nothing. Exactly how difficult is this going to be? So what is it that you're going to throw at God and you think somehow this is going to really put God on the ropes? But at 15, David starts fleeing for his life because after that particular 
encounter, they go to battle, taking on the rest of the Philistines after Goliath falls. And after Goliath falls, the songs start to get sung, and David's not writing them anymore. They're being written about him. And the songs are, oh, Saul is slain his thousands. Now, that sounds kind of like a rap thing, you know? Yo, yo, slain my thousands. Until you realize David slain his tens of thousands. And it's in the same song. So the idea is, yeah, Saul's cool and all, but David beat him. Saul's a man, David's still a man, and he's 15. I mean, there's the problem. And as the penny drops, Saul knows the only thing left to do is not to submit, though that's the one thing God wanted. It's to kill the competition. He had two options. That was the other. Which, of course, will prepare us for a thousand years later when Jesus will walk the planet the religious leaders having the same issue. Jesus is going to step up. And as he steps up, you realize they either have to step down or try to kill the guy. And, of course, they'll try to kill him and will succeed. Well, for a couple of days. Now, with that in mind, David, as he's been running, he's been running. And understand, he will take the throne of two and a half tribes, two tribes and a renegade tribe, at the age of 30. Which means if David starts running for his life at 15, that means the next, as many years as he's lived, he's going to spend running. Now, how long do you run from MI9, MI12, MI6, whatever, MI whatever they are, and the SWAT, and the Bobbies, and the Metro, and everyone else, and the Secret Service, before you just get really, really tired of running? For me, I think about an hour, maybe, maybe less, 15 years. Now, which one of you would think, well, this is clearly the hand of God. God really wants this. God really loves the idea that I'm running for my life and I'm going to get killed. Because he's got a promise on him still that he's going to become king. But I guarantee you there was nothing in in David's life that looked like God's promise was going to come to pass. Do you get that? God's given you a promise and all of the circumstances around you make no sense. How in the world do any of these reconcile with the promise of God? Well, how long do you live that way before you actually change your mind? David, by the last chapter, said, you know what? There's nothing really left to do but flee. To go and join the enemy. In chapter 27, verse 1, it says, now I will perish at the hand of Saul. That's where David is. And now understand, please understand what's going on. What David notices here is that David's brain is taking over and and his faith is not. He's trying to figure it out in his... I go warn you, your brain is not big enough to comprehend the will of God other than the simplicity of what he really wants as an end. And David weighs all of his circumstances and what he comes up with is, you know what, I'm a dead man. There's no way I can survive this anymore. The problem is God's got a promise on his life and God's not going to let him die. But David doesn't see that. And maybe in the circumstances you have, as we're about to head into this now, you have the same issue. You're looking at circumstances that look so impossible, that look so contrary to the love and the heart and the will of God, that you can't possibly see how those can reconcile into something decent. How that can bring to pass the will of God. So what David does is he backslides. He joins the perennial enemy of Israel, the Philistines, for 16 months. And the same guy that writes 7172 of the 150 Psalms writes none of them in David's backslide.
How could you ever expect inspiration there? You can run to the world all you want. And that's all it is for the Philistines, is just running to the world. It's going, you know what? I've seen the church be evil. I've watched Christians be, do stupid, unsaved things. And, you know, people are just rotten. No, no, no. The only thing left, I might as well just go to the world. Do you really think that could ever be the Spirit of God telling you to do that? Do you ever think that God would ever endorse that mindset? Do you think somehow in that moment of self-entitlement and self-aggrandizement, when you're so focused on yourself, that God's just going to go, well, I feel you, go ahead. Do you really think God's going to do that? Because you realize when you run there, the thing that you're actually running from the most is God. Because when you're angry at his people and you're angry at church and somehow you say you're a Christian, but you hate everything that involves Christianity, somewhere in all of that, if everything that involves Christianity, the fundamental thing is Jesus. And you're part of the bride you claim to hate. How does that work? So David has been compromising. Now, please understand. He has been, though he has been with the Philistines, he has been raiding enemies of Israel, killing everybody, taking their stuff and saying he was killing Israelites to get favor, if you will, from the king. He said, no, look, it. can you just put me somewhere in the country so no one will find me? I just want to blend in with the woodwork. But David has an amazing calling on his life, and he's never going to be able to blend in with the woodwork, whether he likes it or not. And meanwhile, with all that happened, Saul, on the other hand, the king that isn't given up the throne, is having a seance. Which, by the way, for your own purpose, look at Leviticus 20 and, and understand. It's, you go, well, that's the Old Testament. Yes, but does God's heart ever change? Does God ever call something a sin and then go, well, I guess it's okay. God calls things there an abomination and anything that involves seeking power somewhere outside of him in the supernatural. God calls an abomination. Now, you can put your own mind to what's an abomination, but it's something so horrible, so disturbing, it makes you nauseous. That's the idea of the word. But David now has convinced the king of the Philistines that he's actually on his side. But here's the problem. You try to live that compromised life, sooner or later you're going to get pinned to the wall. Saul now, he's not hearing from God, so he has a seance to go and pull up Samuel. And Samuel says, God already told you something and you don't want to listen. Why in the world would he tell you something new? When that extremely Russian novel of an introduction that takes us to 1 Samuel 29. And now we have a battle to be fought. And here's where David's in trouble. Because the battle is against Israel. I mean, the Philistines have a lot of enemies. Israel's one of them. But where does David fit into this? And let me warn you as we get into this. When you side with the world and you kind of blend in with the world, sooner or later you're going to go and you're going to criticize people of God. And you're going to criticize the things of God because that's what the world does. And one thing I've watched in the last few years is the church try to eat the church. It's like, you know, if you've ever seen a gang fight, unfortunately, I've been in a few as a kid. I can tell you that the guy that kicks the guy that's already down is clearly the biggest coward. And when Christians or people who call themselves Christians just try to make fun of every other Christian... How do you think God sees that? Well, David's in a place where he's in the camp of the enemy. And sooner or later, when you're in the camp of the enemy, you're going to face God's people. So it says in chapter 29, verse 1, the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek. 
And the Israelite encamped by a fountain. Notice just a fountain, which is in Jezreel. Now, note this for a moment. Well, we won't build every verse, of course, but we have to build this. Afek, by the way, was the place back in chapter 4 where the Israelites brought out the ark and it was captured. Maybe you remember that. God smote them with hemorrhoids and rats. You've got to love God for that. So, I mean, it's a place you'd imagine they remember. But it was a place of great victory for the Philistines, so it's a great place to go back to. They've gone now to the Valley of Jezreel. That is really important because the Valley of Jezreel is very far north of the Philistines. It's a strange place for them to attack. It would be like if we wanted to go in and take over all of the UK, we would start, by the way, somewhere in like Aberdeen. You know, it's a strange concept. But understand, it is the most fundamental. It cuts the nation in half. But it's really important to note that where the sort of the geography of it is. Because it's the Jezreel Valley, I remind you, David has two wives, and one of them is Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. I mean, his wife, one of his two wives is actually from there. To the south is Gilboa. That will become really important. It's a very, it's, it's a round hill. It actually looks like a pimple. Uh, and also the area of the Samaritan Highlands. Uh, to the north is Afek and Afula. Afula, by the way, we used to visit there because it's the place where they actually uh, deal with people that have uh, received blunt force trauma. Terrorist victims, by the way, it was where Shantae was taken when she was run over by the Jeep in Israel. To the west is Mount Carmel and most importantly, a town called Megiddo. To the east, by the way, is Endor. That's, by the way, where Paul, or Saul had his seance in a place called Bet-Shan. Don't forget that because that will play in later on. The reason I say that about the west is a town called Megiddo is the word in the Hebrew for hill is har. Har. Right, Daniel? Har. The hill of Megiddo is called then Har Megiddo. And it's where we get the term Armageddon from. The valley of Jezreel is the valley of Armageddon. 50 miles north of Jerusalem, 25 miles southeast of Haifa. It's an arrow-shaped valley, roughly 14 miles wide and 20 miles long. Now consider 14 miles wide, 20 miles long, and a valley surrounded by hills that the Bible tells us when a battle takes place there with over 200 million men, that blood will go to the horse's bridle. That's a crazy thought. Here, what do we see? A false king will ultimately get dethroned here. Makes sense as a precursor for the Battle of Armageddon. You think that that's just something some crazy person decided to put into some movie to make to sell uh, to sell movies? Well, or to sell some form of plot? Understand it's in scripture. Well, for what it's worth. So here they are. This is a perfect place. They're the, you know, the Philistines are at effect. They won the last time they were there, so they show up again. The uh, Israelites are at the in the Valley of Jezreel at a fountain, and ultimately they will head up to Mount Geboa, which is sixteen hundred and twenty nine feet above sea level. Verse two. The lords of the Philistines passed by in review by hundreds and thousands, and David as well, and his men passed in review in the rear with Achish. Achish, I mind you, is the king. By the way, Achish means, like Ish, Ish means man. Achish means only a man. What a great name for the king. But David now has become a favorite of King Achish. Now, if this is the same guy, it's the same guy that David would have been taken captive at the beginning of his running right after he left Nob, and he acted like a crazy guy in front of him. Now David is one of his chief commanders. 
Verse 3 says, The princes of the Philistines says, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish says to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days and these years? Well, it's been basically 16 months. And to this day, I found no fault in him since he has defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow, fellow is a kind word, isn't it? Like, make this guy return, that he may go back to the place in which you have appointed for him, and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is not David the one of whom they sang to one another and dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands? Now understand, these guys have a really good point. David has shown up as sort of secret service with his men, his 600 men, and they've kind of gone and they're sort of protecting the king of the Philistines, which is, of course, the enemy of Israel. And the guys look and go, are you nuts? I mean, how in the world couldn't this guy be more reconciled to Saul by doing anything other than killing you in the middle of this battle? There's no way I'm going into battle with this guy. David's in a really rough place. Could you imagine David's heart racing and his 600 men going, what in the world are we doing here? What do we do? Do we, who do we fight? And you get in a place like this where somebody really starts bagging on Christians and the cowardly thing to do is just to agree with them. They're stupid because they don't believe in evolution. They're out of touch because they all just want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Their songs have no value to them. They're all an inventive. You know, I mean, it's like all of the things that the world wants to throw out that, to be honest, we'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the end of it all, if we start siding with them sooner or later, you're going to get to the point where you start asking, well, which side do I actually fire on? And that becomes the key here. And with that in mind now, David and his men are going, what do we do? And so what happens is God does something amazing. What God does is he actually pulls them out of the battle. And I, and I got to tell you something in this. Please hear me. God's going to pull David out of the battle because he knows that David would lose it. God never wants to put you in a battle you're going to lose. God never wants to give you a test you're going to fail unless you have to. It tells us, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has come upon you other than what is common to man. And, by the way, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will always make a way of escape that you may be able to bear up from under it. He tells us that every test of your faith will produce patience and patience, character, character, hope, by the way. It tells us both in Romans 5 and in James 1. It tells us in 1 Peter 1 that it will prove genuine your faith. In Romans 8, it tells us that we are more than conquerors in 837. In all the things that could possibly separate us from God's love. But notice the terms that the King Achish, the Philistine, enemy of the Israel, says in verse 6. Achish called David and he said to him, Surely as the Lord lives. There's our tetragram, by the way. Yad He Vav He. It's like Yahweh, this is as sure as God lives. You've been upright. And you're going on and you're coming in with me. By the way, he hasn't been. I remind you, he's been killing the enemies of Israel, bringing back their slaughter, their booty. But they, he's not killed the people he said he has. So he's been living a lie. And we'll do that. No one looks dorkier to me than a Christian that has left the world and now is trying to get back into it. Because they have to try to put on a funk that doesn't belong to them. And you know, the goofiest people are the people that are just trying to be someone they're just not. 
Because you don't belong there anymore. But he says, you know, the problem is he has the king fooled. He says, look, you've been like, surely as the Lord lives, you've been upright. For to this day I've found no evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's don't find favor in you. So look at, therefore, return now, go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. You know what? I really can't afford to have you here because everybody else will probably kill me if you don't. So David says to Achish, notice, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight, notice, against the enemies of my Lord and my king? Now, I can't tell you I know what in the world David's doing here. Is he playing this bluff out? Or at this point, has he really agreed that Israel is his enemy, Saul is his enemy, and that his lord and king is actually Achish? The crazy part about it is, what's clear is David had never wanted to trade God because everything Achish says has that hint of heaven still on it. Did you notice? Notice the next statement. Achish answered and said to David, verse 9, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. An angel of God? Malach Elohim. And this is not a Philistine term. He says, as the Lord lives, and now an angel of God. Now, where do you think he's getting those terms from? I mean, even when you try to blend in with the world, if you belong to the Lord, it's going to start falling out of you. And people are going to be aware of it. And when we go get pizza, and the next thing I know, the owner of the place starts turning on Hillsong. I mean, we're hearing, Jesus, Jesus, while everyone's eating pizza. I mean, yesterday when we were there, it isn't like we go every day, but we were there yesterday. He was like, yeah, praise the Lord. And I was like, did he just say that? I mean, it's interesting. And I have no idea where he is, but we're going to certainly find out. But it was like interesting to be able to see how people try to engage you. What's interesting is, is that in a case like this, the enemy seems to have a clearer understanding of this than God's people do. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, don't, you can't go up with us to battle. Verse 10, therefore, rise up early in the morning with your masters, uh, with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, get out of here, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now, don't miss this. At this particular point, and this is why you can see why we can do two chapters. David has to take a trip now back to Ziklag, which is roughly a hundred miles away. Now, I remind you, he's not taking a train. He's not hopping in a car. At best, he's going to be on a horse. Any of you ever ride a horse for more than an hour? Any of you? Am I the only one here that's... Now, I, now when I used to watch cowboys, like, you know, in those cowboy films, how they kind of walk all strange like that, I used to think it was rickets. But I realized, man, I had a, we had friends at our church back in the States, and they owned a bunch of horses, and they wanted me to go horseback riding with them on the beach. Now, I thought, well, it was just from the pier, it was basically from the pier to the rock. It was roughly about a four-mile journey. Who knows how long that's going to take. Couldn't be that big of an issue. Oh, my goodness. The first thing was, is I had a horse that was afraid of surfboards. I mean, and the next thing I learned is that horses can do like a 90-degree turn. I don't know how this is, this is possible. But I had a horse that every time he saw a surfboard, he would take a 90-degree turn. The funny part was, is we were actually going on the coastline where there were five great surf spots. Great idea. It was amazing. It took me about an hour and a half to get that four miles. And I started to think, man, for four miles, it took me an hour and a half. I wonder how long it would actually take 
for me to make it 100 miles, like a trip to Ziklag. And at that point, which one of you actually wants to go and do anything on the other side of that, except maybe just lay until your legs start to straighten out again? But David's got to take his boys back now. All of the families were left back in Ziklag, so David and the boys just went to work. And going to work means in this day they were going to go fight the Israelites. Now they couldn't. But David has no idea what he's about to, to receive. Chapter 30, verse 1. And I remind you, this is all while David's on a backslide. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. It took three days to get there. Think that through. That the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire. And had taken captive the women and those who were there. From small to great, they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. Now, did you notice here something? God wanted to make special mention here that these horrible, nasty, and they were known for being evil and wicked and really, really cruel people, they were still nicer than David and his men. Because when David and his men were living a lie and they had to go and pretend like they were killing Israelites, they had to kill every human being in the town to steal their stuff, to bring it back and pretend like they had killed Israelites. Meanwhile, the Amalekites, they took everyone alive. And i got to tell you, there are times where you look and you go, I don't know how that person who claims to be a Christian could do something so horrible. You know, when you're running from God, I don't think there's a limit to the stupidity we can do when we run from God. I mean, it's like no holds barred because you know that all truth and all limits are given by the one you're running from. So here's the deal. David goes back. Imagine you went to show up to work and you're like, oh, my goodness, we have to kill Israelites today. Come on. I guess what we're going to do. And then obviously he's like, nope, they won't let you. You need to go back. Okay, all right, guys. Well, I guess we're not going to kill anyone today. And you head back. And all you see is smoldering embers of a place that's burned down in every one of you. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, wife and children. Gone. You had no warning. You didn't see it coming. The Amalekites, I remind you, were one of the people that David had raided. But here, it wasn't like they just went after David, to be honest. They just went after anyone and everyone around them. David's group just happened to be in the trajectory, and the reason is because David is where he's not supposed to be. And when you want to hide out in the world, the things that happen to the world are bound to happen to you. You're there in the highway for it. But I can't even imagine this. It's like you come back and you think, oh, okay, home, a little place of safety. And your whole family's shattered. Everything's gone. Your house is gone. It's like there's, there's just nothing. How do you think the guys took it? Well, it tells us here. Verse 3 says, So David and his men came to the city, and there it was burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. David and the people were with him, lifted up their voices, and wept until they had no power to weep. They've cried themselves. Now, these aren't, these aren't like guys that, you know, one of those commercials just makes everybody just start weeping. They're not those kind of guys. These are rough, these are banshees, these are raiders. And yet, even with all those raiders, every one of these guys, I mean, how bad does it have to get before it gets to your heart? Let me say that again. How bad does it have to get before it gets to your heart? Does it have to be your family? 
I guess for David it did. David in his backslide now has lost his family. He's lost his friend's respect. I lost his own self-respect. But let me tell you what he hasn't lost. He hasn't lost his God. And strangely enough, he hasn't lost his calling. It tells us for what it's worth in Romans 11.29 that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When God put a calling on your life, he never, ever plans on taking it back. He already knows the stupid choices you're going to make. And he put a call on your life for a reason. But I remind you, Jesus, right before departing, before ascending, said in Matthew 28, 20, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And Hebrews were reminded, he told us, and he tells us in Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. First Timothy 2, 13 says, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. You know why? Because he will not deny or disown himself. He put his Holy Spirit inside of you. He's not going to abandon himself. So when you do these really, really dumb things, it doesn't mean God's going to change his mind. He already knew these things. But I do want to warn you. He still knows that every breath you breathe away from him is a wasted breath. Let's just be honest. And that doesn't remove the the fact that this has now destroyed his family. This has destroyed his friends. This, I mean, the guys that left, I remind you, that became part of David's crew from 1 Samuel 22, 2, tells us these were the guys who were in distress, that were in debt, and everyone that was discontented. And now David, we read in verse 6, is greatly distressed. David knows what these guys felt. These guys came to David because they were so burnt out by what they saw in their, if you will, the practical religion, in this case, the politic, that they came to David and thought they saw something different. And now, because of David's faithlessness, now, they're like, you're just like, you're just like Saul. It tells us in verse 5 that David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, there she is from Jezreel, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite, former wife, or the widow, I'm sorry, because he had died, had been taken captive. And David just freaks out. The word distressed here is a word that just means the guy is shattered. Now, please, 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 tonight, hear my heart. This is going to pick up in a moment because the whole thing needs to change. For 16 months, David's been trying to blend in with a place he doesn't belong. He's tired of the battle that comes from taking a stand with God. But he has no idea the cost. It's cost him his family. And boy, you watch this. People that try to live a double life and they have no idea. All of a sudden, it just the next thing you know, it's like all the people who respected you don't respect you anymore. And the family that once loved you and clung to you now, they're, where in the world are they? You know where they are? They're taken captive. That's what we read. And David now is at a place where every guy around them has cried themselves to complete exhaustion. Have you ever had one of those emotional? I can look at some of you and go, I probably, you probably, but the rest of you as well. I mean, have you ever had one of those moments that was such an emotional moment? You were just so, you were more exhausted than you've ever been physically. I remember having to swim at a point when I was younger where I thought I could have drowned from the situation. And I had a dislocated shoulder at the moment, so it was a really kind of a, it was a rough moment. And I remember being exhausted after a couple hours of getting myself finally to shore after being caught in a rip. 
But it's nothing compared to those emotional moments when you're just, because it's more than just your physical now. It's like your soul is just deflated. It's depleted. And David's got 600 men now. That as much as they hated Saul and all that was going on with him and they were angry at him and all that. Remember, they wanted to kill him before that. They seem to still have a heart because they really are crushed at the fact they lost their families. David didn't just destroy his own family here. He destroyed everyone else's around him because of this disobedience. Because he took them all with him into the world. And if you like it or not, you're a leader. And if you're a leader, where you go, people are going to follow you. Be careful where you go. The people, verse 6, David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved. No, no, you just it was was. That means it was singular. All the people had this in common. It was like one thing. They were at a point where they were completely so shattered that the only thing left that they could do, they thought, is, well, we just need to kill David. You, 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 you're the reason I lost my wife. You're the reason my kids are gone. It's you. And, you know, how does David want that now? 600 men that he's helped train to fight now that are all looking at him going, if it wasn't for you, my family would be okay. If it wasn't for you, you led them. You led us. We trusted you. And look at where you took us. And it says that every man and his sons and daughters, they were grieved because of this. But, look at the end of verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The word strengthen is a common word. We see it, by the way, all the way back in Exodus. The word means to harden. When we read about someone hardening their heart, what that means is they strengthen their conviction. See, what David got pushed to was he got pushed to a place where he had to commit to something. He was either at this point going to commit to the world or he was going to commit to God where he belonged. And he got pushed to the place. And what happened is staring him in the face is what happens when you really do even play with the world. When you play with the world. Now, if you play with the world like a drug and you play with it and all of this destruction happens from playing with it. And now you're going to have to commit to one side or the other. What happens if you commit to that now? What's left to destroy? If I come, if I heard this many people with something careless and stupid, what happens if I really jump into this? What's left? And David gets pushed and at this moment. He's like, you know, I'm going to have to commit. And I'm telling you what I am done. I am done with this stupid Philistine thing. We're done. God, finally you can have me. Now look at if you're playing with this thing right now and God's like a pool you're sticking your toe in, sooner or later you're going to jump in something. And you're going to have to make a choice. But I warn you, every moment you spend outside of the pool is another moment someone gets hurt. And sad enough, it's normally someone you love because the closest to you are the first people that are going to get infected when you do. And David's like, you know what? It's time to make a choice. And notice it wasn't just the Lord God. It was the Lord, his God. It is time for God to become your God. Not just a God that you can go visit on holidays. It's going to be yours now. So David now, what does it look like when you do change? 
What does it look like when you're like, you know what? Let's change this now. I'm committing. Well, this is what it says. And by the way, I challenge you to take a look at 2 Corinthians 7 on your own and see what it looks like when real sorrow brings about real repentance, when it's really godly sorrow. Because it brings about a whole lot of changes. Verse 7, David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. And the first thing you start to see is that David, in this commitment, begins to pray. And he asks God, do we go? Now, let's face it. David could have said, you know, God, I've earned this. I earned, I've earned the loss of my whole family. Let's face it. God, I've, I've so blown this. You should just kill me. I mean, these guys should stone me, but you could just do it. Why don't you just kill me, God? David could have done that. But David seemed to understand that God's a little is a whole lot more merciful than that. So David says, all right, you know what, God, I am committing to you. And the first thing is, all right, God, well, then I recognize this. If, if I am going to go, if I am going to get right with you, what do I do? Do I go and, do I go and go after those people I've hurt and do I try to get them back? Do I go after my family? I recognize that's going to be a battle. Do I pursue this troop? Am I going to win? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, God says, pursue. For you shall certainly overtake them. And without fail, don't miss this, recover all. Do you see that there? Do you realize what God didn't do? God didn't say, who is it? David, who? Oh, finally you're here. Boy, you know, it's been a long time, hasn't it, David? God always rescues before he ever does anything like that. You know, in Joel 2, God shows us what happens to the nation that's disobedient. And there's this locust after locust. And he brings one kind of locust and they munch through everything. And then the next locust comes and one marches and one flies and one nibbles and one does this and one wears knickers. But in the end of it all, they all clean out everything. And then after the whole thing, the land sweet totally wastes. And then God says in 2.12, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Not just some of it. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping. Put your heart into this. And with mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. The world doesn't need to see another show of a person openly weeping when their heart really isn't there. But he goes, let your heart be broken. Not just a day. Not just your mood. And with mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God because he's gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger and he's full of great kindness. And he knows how to stop from doing this. He goes, if you're really willing to do that, give me your heart. Interesting, he says, that fig tree and the vine, they'll both yield their strength. And then in verse 25, he says, and then I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, the great army that I sent among you. Now, please don't miss this. He doesn't just say, I will, I will restore the land the locusts have eaten. That would be different. I'll give you your stuff back. What he says is, I'll give you the years back that were eaten by those things. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine after all of that? 
Because let's face it, every, every breath we breathe away from God with our heart away from him, every breath we breathe is such a wasted breath. And God says, look, at if you're just willing to give me your heart like you, like you know you should, because I'll give you those breaths back. And then he says, then oh, you'll eat and you'll be satisfied. You'll have plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Like, look at all I'm really wanting is your heart. Will you let me take it? And if you won't give it to me completely, it'll have to come in pieces. So David says, what do I do? God, I choose you. What do I do? Can we do this battle? And God says, go. The victory is yours, David. All I was waiting for is your heart. So, verse 9, now it picks up. How does, it, how does this end? David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor. By the way, it's only about 20 miles away from Ziklag. Where those stayed who were left behind. David pursued he and 400 men. Wait a minute, what about the other 200? It says the 200 stayed behind because they were so weary. Pagar literally means exhausted to the point of fainting. That they could not cross the brook itself, the brook Besor. I mean, these guys, I remind you, all cried themselves to complete exhaustion. Then David says, God said, we're going to get your wives back. God says, we're going to get your children back. I don't care about the cows and the flat screens. You're going to get those too. But I want to let you know, you're getting your families back. So I want you to come with me. And they take 20-mile trek. And after 20 miles, 200 of these guys are like, you know what, David? I can't even take another step. And David says, all right, I'll tell you what. Just stay right here. Who's still with me? Two-thirds of his men still go, one-third's left behind. Then they found an Egyptian in a field, brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They let him drink water, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins, that which he had eaten. So his strength came back to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. The same, they made the same amount of time, by the way, that it took David to go from where they were with the valley of Jezreel all the way back to Ziklag. And David said to him, by the way, by, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion on the southern area of the Herathites in the, in the territory which belongs to Judah in the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And he goes, oh, man, guess what? That's exactly where he needs to go. David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? And the man who was sick says to him, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. When they brought them down, there they were, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Do you really want to be somebody that causes the enemy to rejoice like this, to celebrate because he's taken your spoils? You realize when you start giving these things up because of your running and playing with the world, or I, when I run and play with the world, I recognize what happens as a result is the enemy rejoices over the stuff he gets to take that doesn't belong to him. But I remind you, they had cried themselves to exhaustion after a three-day trek back to Ziklag, took a 20-mile trek to the Brook Besor, now made themselves so we don't even know where this is beyond that. And then somewhere in it, it tells us, let me tell you about David. It says in verse 17, David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. That's over a 24-hour battle. This guy is serious about taking things back. 
And I remember 200 men couldn't even make it to the brook or put to the brook. This is not a man escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from him. David recovered everything. All. Then David took all the flocks and the herds that they had driven before the other livestock. And he said, okay, this is David's spoil. Then David came to 200 men who had been so weary that they couldn't follow David, whom they had also made to stay at the brook Besor. So when they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, then David came near the people and he greeted them and noticed the people who speak up here, then all the, worthless, the wicked and worthless men. Even among those guys that fought the battle with him, there are wicked and worthless men. Of those who went with David, answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil in which they've recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. Now understand what they're saying is, hey, 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 only two-thirds of us fought this battle. I mean, one-third was a bunch of tired guys by the brook. We're not going to give you any of this spoil. You just watched our stuff. But David says in verse 23, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. Look at you. When you know that the Lord did it all, you have no problem sharing. For who will heed you in this matter? But as for the part who goes down to the battle, so shall it be for the part who stays by the supplies. They shall be alike. So it was from that day forward, he made a statute and and tells us then now when David came to Ziklag and when he some of the spoil, the elders, he sends it out. It's a statute in Egypt from that day forward. It says, here's the present he sends for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who were at Bethel, to those who were at Ramot in the south, those who were in Yatir, those who were in Aror, those who were in, in Shifmoth. Those who were in Eshtemoa, those who were in Rachel, those who were in the cities of the Aramelites, those who were in the cities of the Kenites, those who were in Chorma, those who were in Chorashan, those who were in Atah, those who were in Hebron, which will finally be a very important place later, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to roam. Now notice how many places David winds up giving all this stuff to. Remember David says, this is my spoil. What does he do with it? He starts sending it as gift baskets. Hey, guess what's in your gift basket? Some cows. That's a pretty big gift, gift basket. You know, and he's like, look at those guys who had tortured and beat up you. Now look at I'm going to give you all this. Now don't miss this. These verses, these last few verses as we bring this to close, are verses my wife holds on to. Not everybody gets to go into the battle. Some people actually have to keep the stuff. My wife calls herself the official keeper of the stuff. The reason why we can have these studies, the reason why we can go out and hit the streets is because my wife is actually taking care of the house. Now, that doesn't make her less in any way. According to this text, it tells us that whatever spoils the Lord brings, whatever people come to know him, whatever happens here in this room when we get drawn to the Lord, that actually is accrued to her as well because she helps, if you will, she helps ignite me and put me in a place where I can actually launch and do these things. And there are going to be those who, by the way, they can't get out into the field the same way, but they can help others who can. They can help keep the stuff or help send them like David will in regards to the building of the temple. But the beauty is, is when we all actually are still somehow involved in the battle, whether we're in the field fighting, 
or whether we're helping those that are. In the end, the spoil is still all of ours. So what if in this tiny little study we have right here that all of a sudden all of London gets saved? And you'd say, well, one guy spoke. Do you really think it's just going to be me? I mean, in the end of it all, it's God's word. It doesn't return empty. It's God's gospel. That's the power of salvation. It's God's Holy Spirit that convicts. What part do we get to be? We're donkeys that get to carry Jesus. And I'm okay with that. In the end of it all, the bottom line is, is that when we all just do what God tells us to, what we realize is that all parts have to, someone has to make the guns and bullets that other people shoot, so to speak. And some people help sponsor that. In the end of it all, when we're all just doing what God has called us to, great fruit is born out. Now look at it. As we go to prayer now, this, notice the chapter ended with great repentance, great restoration, and great riches. Great victory to share. Now maybe it's, you know, let's face it, the world is enticing. The world has great advertising. And everything is shiny and it's lit and it's going to be quick for any of us who are easily given to spiritual ADD. And it's like, Lord, I just love you. Squirrel! I mean, it's, the, it's amazing how quickly we could be turning. And yet, the Lord knows the difference between a weakness like that and a heart, to be honest, who just really isn't in it. And where it's like, God, I'll be in it as long as you keep making the move and you keep giving me good things and you keep doing nice stuff in my life. And if you keep doing nice stuff in my life, we're going to be really cool. But that's not a real relationship. There's no relationship. Because to be honest, God is not entitled to make your life comfortable. God is What we read, by the way, in Romans 8, is that the ministry of God, the Father, is to make you into Jesus' image. And he will do that with all things, because all things work to the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. He's going to work out all things, and they work together. But all of those things include the things you wouldn't volunteer for, but that are necessary because he is chiseling you into his image. And some of the things to chisel the rock that you are are going to have to be really hard things to chisel you. But let me ask you as we go to prayer. Are you living an adulterous life? You belong to the lover that created your soul. And he is obsessed with you. He can't stop thinking about you. He paints sunsets for you to observe, causes the rain to cool. He brings the smile of a friend and the gift of Thai food. And it's amazing what God will do to tell you he loves you. For some, that might be jerk. For some, that'll just be chicken. But whatever it is, God knows how to tell you he loves you. Do we know how to tell him that we love him? Could you imagine if God just acted the way we do to him for one week? Would we really believe God loved us? Now, I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to challenge if our heart's all in, we should be able to say, yeah, I'd get love out of that. But if you're in that place where you're actually trying to play both camps, you're trying to keep both happy, you're going to get pinned to the wall. Chances are tonight you are. And you're going to have to commit somewhere. When you stand at the altar and say, I do, that should be a commitment, right? Right? 
And you're like, well, this is a challenge. Yeah, you married a human being. Surprise. That's where the real, I mean, let's face it, you really don't see a commitment until a challenge comes. So what did you commit to? Who did you commit to? And what would happen if our hearts were really in it? God says, man, just let me, just, will you let me get to your heart? Not just to your face. Not just to your words. Tonight, what if we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? We said, Lord, I choose you. I choose you. I know that that means that there's going to be battles to be fought. What if you're in a position where you're like, I, don't, I can't see how God could restore. Could you imagine that's what every disciple thought when Jesus died? I can't see how this is going to wind up with life. Even though he had told them on at least four occasions that he was going to rise from the dead, you think that they might get that. Especially when he rose other people from the dead. So we kind of realize that raising from the dead means raising from the dead. But if he really did die for all of our sins, and he did, so that all of the nastiness we were was already buried with him, and then he really did rise again as he really did. There's a whole new life to live. You can't tell me Jesus' heart wasn't in it. I think it's time we reciprocated. No, look at Maybe this message is just for me. But I realize, I mean, if you're married, you'll have many opportunities to do things that no married person should do. And every time... Your commitment is the thing that you make that causes you to make the choice to say no. And every day you'll have choices. Choices in regards to things because you belong to God. You can go, well, my commitment really is going to tell me no. I'm going to say no to that thing because of that. But I tell you, even if you've been in the worst and the stupidest state because of the things and the choices you've made, I'm here to let you know God has not changed his mind about loving you. He's not changed his mind about holding you or calling you his own. And he's not changed his mind about the calling he placed on your life. But you really want to enjoy it? Give them all and watch what happens. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for what you've done in this time. In these two chapters we've been able to go through, Lord, we really do see the failure of a person like ourselves, Lord, who really is given over to um, sometimes just to overthinking. And we recognize overthinking is under praying. But for the first prayer he has to pray, after 16 months of just trying to blend in with the place that has already declared war on you, I recognize that there comes a time finally where David's like, I'm so done with this. But in his case, it had to be at the expense of almost losing everything. And he really did lose everything. You just were so merciful and full of grace that you restored it. But I don't want to miss, and I don't want to lose anything. I don't want to lose any member of my family, even for a moment nor the respect of the men that I get the privilege of serving with and the women I get the privilege of serving with. So God, please, tonight, rip out our wandering hearts and replace them with a committed, loyal one. 
It says, Jesus, be everything. And we recognize, Lord, that tomorrow we will be, even tonight on the way home, we may be challenged to do things or think things or whatever or want things that are contrary to that commitment. But, Lord, we recognize it has to be the power of your spirit, not our power or might, but your spirit that's going to have to overcome. So we give you permission to so overcome us that for every battle and every choice that becomes a battle to make, Lord, we pray that every one of them will be one of victory. Thank you for being committed to us, never leaving us nor forsaking us, knowing that nothing can separate us from the love, Father, of you and your Son, Jesus Christ. And may there be nothing, Lord, that can separate you from our love. So, Lord, even tonight we pray. Declaring Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Lord, we've done that so many times, but Lord, we really just want to renew our vows tonight and tell you, God, where you belong. You deserve everything, and, and Lord, help us to give you everything. And we just pray, Lord, for those in this room and even ourselves, Lord, who somehow in all of this may have, out of these choices that have been made, have seen, Lord, the whole life they knew dissipate and just shatter in front of them. I pray now, Lord, you would restore. Please. Not because we deserve it, but because you're good and merciful. In Jesus' name. Amen.